Nadia Sullenberg presents Casual Friday. Written and read by Thaddeus Sullenberg. Another go around. In 1979, as reported in the March issue of Weird and Wooly magazine, seven-year-old Kyoto native Natsumi Ogawa claimed that in a former life she was a New York cab driver after the shy and mild-mannered schoolgirl began exhibiting strange behavior. She started smoking cigars and took to increasing fits of aggressiveness, not to mention displaying an uncanny knowledge of Midtown's best delicatessens. She barked at her teachers and constantly spoke ill of New Jersey. In addition to an overuse of the phrases Our Lady Liberty and It Beats Shoveling Shit. Randall Warren, a father of four living in Indiana, began having vague recollections of late 19th century Paris before being convinced he was, in a previous life, a prominent can can dancer who performed under the stage name Le Marshmallow Rouge. One day he inexplicably began speaking fluent French and took on an uncharacteristic predilection for romanticizing not to mention the development of a most welcome knack for pleasuring his wife. While speaking with journalists, his wife commented on the early signs of her husband's metempsychosis when she stated, I don't remember him ever having such an impressive high kick. Noted philanthropist and grandfather of the century, an honor awarded to him in 1999 by a Happiness County, Louisiana newspaper, Glenn Williams proclaimed himself the trans-animated soul of a Colombian drug lord known simply as the Pepper, whilst in the middle of judging a Creole Gumbo County Fair cook-off. Something about the spices used by contestant number seven, the beloved neighborhood figure later said, opened in me a lockbox of memories so heinous, I hesitated giving her the first place ribbon. Williams went on to say that excluding haunting images of executions and spurts of unexplained paranoia, the drug-fueled orgies looked like they were real hoot. What happens to us after we die? Actually, to our despair, what happens to us after we die can easily be summed up by possible tears and a bill. More, what happens to our soul after we die? What happens to our hopes and dreams? Our essence? Does our spirit live on? And not in the hackneyed eulogy sense. After all, we're just slowly rotting meat concerned with coordinating socks and cheap hotel accommodations. When our ticket gets punched, is it for another go-around? Or is it simply one ride per person? In order to answer these great questions, we must consider several different perspectives. Religious beliefs, or lack thereof for that matter. Personal experiences, that is, the few that have lived, died, and lived again to tell about it. And those who believe in an idealized afterlife, a creation of an individual's own making. This response could easily include anything from a dreamlike reunion with loved ones to theories involving a large spaceship and the draft of a comet used as a celestial vehicle for souls, while their voided terrestrial bodies are left behind to promote leading athletic footwear. I'd like to forgo my sometimes nihilistic outlook and take a more hopeful and cheery approach to the afterlife by looking into the spiritually enlightening subject of reincarnation, 
which comes from the Greek karyophylian, meaning in Western civilization, a material representation of a young woman's virginity in the form of a biological freak show displayed on her wrist during a formal gymnasium set dance or wedding. In contrast to Nietzsche's theory that life and energy exist within a sort of loop, suggesting we're all destined to repeat the same life over and over for all of eternity, which in a life filled with unrelenting misery and meaningless anguish is a real downer, especially for those poor ants that have to contend with the cruel ten-year-old boy perpetually flicking the potato chip from the grass, not to mention the boy's mother. Reincarnation proposes that after an individual dies, their spirit leaves their body and hangs out in a sort of cosmic waiting room before being reborn into a new body, an immortal soul. As intriguing as this notion sounds, I can't help but embrace the mental image of a reception with sheet cloud flooring and a now-serving ticker with faces of newborns, and a stout, choking victim wearing a California tourism tee with the image of an avocado and the reading, Ripe When Soft, still clutching the amusement park turkey leg that did him in, being ushered into the back while asking repeatedly with a mouthful of turkey, now this isn't gonna hurt, right? Fanciful and entirely plausible imagery aside, prove me wrong, I got all of eternity. It appears from a myriad of case studies spanning the globe that evidence of past lives have been found present in the consciousnesses of, to the argument of the doubter, otherwise rational individuals, making this whole theory of reincarnation nothing to scoff at. And for the skeptics that do wish to deride and poo-poo the concept of eternal spirits strutting around in someone else's sneakers, I have compiled a brief collection of fascinating examples. Cape Town, South Africa, 2015. Longshoreman crane operator Kungao Morne recounts the following recurring dream. It's a dream I've dreamt every night for the past eight years. I'm making my way down into the cellar of an old abandoned shoe repair shop on a desolate block somewhere in a large city I don't recognize but assume is a version of New York City. The cellar is a stark contrast. It's a snazzy lounge with a bar filled with people. At least I think they're people. The pictures are always hazy at first, usually just large colorful shapes that eventually take the forms of people in animal costumes. My eyesight is screened and it's hot and somewhat difficult to breathe. I notice my hands are fuzzy lion paws with pads. I'm dressed as a lion. As I walk through the room, a rabbit and dog drinking martinis raise their glasses to me. A lioness checks me out as I walk by and growls suggestively. A group of foxes smoking cigarettes and standing around two wolves dry humping part for me to walk through and acknowledge me as master. It's a den of furries. That's when I notice the entourage of lion cubs in renaissance-looking masks following behind me. The dream always ends the same way. We enter a back room that's dimly lit and shaded in red. It's an orgy of human plushies. Suddenly they all stop and turn towards me. Welcome back, master. They say, then slowly make their way over to me, some crawling, some upright. I'm surrounded, but not alarmed. I feel powerful, godlike. They all start pawing at me and making wild animal sounds. I'm enraptured as they call my name over and over, master, master. After doing some investigating, I learned of a bizarre furries cult operating out of New York's East Village in the late 1980s. They called themselves the Cuddles, and their leader was a man by the name of Aristius, although his followers referred to him as Master. He was born Gabriel Picardo and studied theater at NYU while working at a sofa shop on Columbus in 93rd. 
he was fired for skinning and neatly eviscerating a sectional while forcing a loveseat to watch. He took the innards and sewed together his first fursuit, a vixen with lashes that, believe me, could stop a hound dead in its tracks. I found a picture of the master photographed on an elevated throne made of fur, wearing a lion costume. The same lion costume from my dream. There were lionesses standing on either side of him and in the foreground, two tigers and a koala really giving it to one another. Ontario, Canada, 2001. High school junior Jade Taylor drove 2,000 miles from Ottawa to the reptile-themed Scales and Fangs miniature golf course in the northern Florida hinterland to settle a score from a former life after she received vindictive sensations and unclear visions during a youth group outing to a Montreal zoo three days earlier. Best friend and classmate Audrey Clotier reported the honor student's unusual behavior to a chaperone after witnessing her friend fall into a sort of trance while standing alone in front of the python exhibit, shouting, You put onions in the meatloaf again. Woman, you know I hate onions in the meatloaf. In the days following, at home and in school, Taylor claimed that her name was actually Doyle Rucker and that she was strangled to death with her lucky leopard print thong by her wife's lover, Jackson Lafayette. Like Rucker, Jackson Lafayette was a slow-witted criminal and tweaker living in Florida who worked at the Scales and Fangs miniature golf course. Here, he met Rucker's wife, Cheryl, one afternoon while she was on a date with two of her boyfriends. Lafayette and Rucker's wife began a torrid love affair, which they consummated against a fiberglass alligator behind the snake snack shack, an event that was captured in the background of one of the photos from the Pemberton family vacation, the one where the Pemberton kids learn where babies come from and dreams die. Together, the sex-educating, co-mosquito-bite-scratching lovers devised a plan to steal Rucker's late mother's porcelain doll collection, which was valued at around $7,000. During the botched robbery at the Rucker's double-wide abode, Lafayette killed Rucker. Sixteen years later, as reported by the detectives handling the then-cold case, high school cheerleader Jade Taylor, steadfast in the belief she was the reincarnation of Doyle Rucker, drove to the Northern Florida putt-putt course to inquire on Lafayette's whereabouts. She posed as his fictional abandoned daughter, and with the aid of a perfectly executed sob story, touched the heart of the establishment's owner and longtime friend of Lafayette, who mentioned the now reclusive one-off killer, and recent late-night writer of spec scripts for Touch by an Angel, had bought a small piece of land in Bradford County and gave Taylor a phone number where she could reach it. At a payphone in downtown Stark, Taylor placed a call to Lafayette and pretended to be a buyer for an amusement park resort company acquiring plots in the area at a generous price tag. A meeting was set. Two days later, Taylor met Lafayette at his mobile home. Upon entering the residence, Taylor spotted one of Rucker's mother's dolls sitting on the mantelpiece above the television. Susie Strawberries, to be precise. Detective stated that somewhere within 15 minutes of Taylor's arrival, she struck the two-bit hustler and occasional human helium canister rented out to kids' parties in the back of the head, causing him to hit the kitchen countertop. Lafayette was killed instantly. Three days later, Taylor was picked up by the police at the Hearts Over I-75 Couples Motel, where she was found in the pool floating on a raft, drinking an ice-cold sixer, wearing a white, low-hanging tee, and a stuffed leopard print thong. Queensland, Australia, 1980. 
After experiencing unexplained images from what he believed was a past life, renowned architect J. Theodore Holmes sought consultation from a hypnotherapist. The following is a transcript of one of their more illuminating sessions. And where are you now? I'm on a plane heading to the 1956 Winter Olympics in Italy. I'm sitting next to a pregnant woman. I ate her meal while she was taking a nap and blamed its absence on the stewardess's incompetence. What happens after you land? I steal a taxi from a young couple on their honeymoon and contemplate stealing the bride but decide against it because of time. Where do you have to be? Practice. You're an athlete? From the Soviet Union. Alpine skiing. Synthetic testosterone. What was that about testosterone? I'm juiced. Feels amazing. When I walk into the complex, I strip the door from its hinges just by opening it. I don't even care. I sign an autograph with a french fry. Everyone starts chanting my name. They are so stupid. And what are they chanting? Avenir Popov. How would you describe yourself, Avenir? Rough around the edges, but kind at my core. Before a competition, I saw halfway through the skis of my competitors and laugh openly as they ragdoll down the mountain. When they stop, I run over and straddle them and get my picture taken. Sometimes I lift their head by their hair like a dead animal while pointing at their face with popular hand gestures of the time or dress them up quickly in a beret and cigarette, you know, if they're from France or something. Maybe flap their jaw open and do a bit, you know, if the crowd's responding. That doesn't sound very nice. You just don't understand my humor. It's like real edgy, right on the line stuff, with the occasional step over to the other side. You know, to see how the grass feels between my toes. Once there, I typically ask myself, is this something I like? And if so, what kind of upkeep are we looking at here? Fertilizers? Irrigation? It sounds fun, but do I even have the time to make that kind of commitment? That's me. That's my humor. Alpine skier Avenir Popov was the unofficial gold medalist of the downhill event of the 1956 Winter Olympics, but was disqualified after several witnesses observed Popov applying a substance to the skis of the other skiers before the event finals which for some reason were left unattended for an extended period of time. Like something you might see in an 80s movie, so full of holes it rivals a possible adult film award category listed by a similar name. Tests of the substance revealed that it came from a Soviet Union lab designated to the manufacturing of the country's top-selling sulfuric acid brand. After their skis dissolved mid-run, one by one the competitors slid lifelessly to the bottom of the course, where they met ten inflatable bowling pins staged by Popov. Campton University, England, 1921 Charles R. Rowland, a distinguished Egyptologist and professor of philology, believed with absolute conviction he was the two-legged transmigration of 18th dynasty pharaoh Ambrose II's beloved cat, after experiencing a rather embarrassing dinner date with a colleague in a turf dispute with her uppity feline flatmate, Mr. Sugar Tufts. In hopes of connecting with his ancient counterpart, the prominent professor adopted a diet of milk and fish, which he plated on a saucer that sat atop the desk in his office. He followed his meals with what one student referred to as aggressive grooming, 
which occasionally transpired in the school's refectory, and almost always preceded a nap in a beam of sunlight stretching across the main lawn. He was formally reprimanded by the university's board of governors after digging up the flower bed outside the vice chancellor's building before squatting and relieving himself. The university head stated during a hearing that it wasn't so much the act of defecation that was inexcusable, but the fact that he tracked it all along the infirmary walk. After taking to wearing dark eyeliner and styling his whiskers in an adorable fashion, Professor Rowland discussed his newfound past in a series of correspondences with a colleague and famed professor of medieval literature, Alexander Bailey. The following is one of those letters. Dearest Alexander, You may think of me nothing more than an old fool headed for the loony bin, but I assure you I'm quite lucid. Why, just the other day, during my afternoon stroll along the river, I found a delectable old shoe with a sole that smelled so curiously pungent I had to mark it. And the memories are coming through much clearer now. I can see the construction of Ambrose II's pyramid and the erection of his great obelisk. It's all so vivid. Surrounded by sand, I feel right at home. In fact, I don't ever recall a time or place when I've ever felt so content. In one memory, I stumble upon a market of dried and salted fish baking in the sun. I wait until the proprietor turns around and I snatch one, but not before an unrestrained moment spent rolling on them. The memories are so real I'm convinced they're not memories at all, and that I've somehow tapped into the spiritual consciousness of Little Scarab Slayer. That was my name. I can see it written on the side of my clay bowl in the Pharaoh's chamber. Our existences have merged into a single timeline, transcending all relative knowledge of the space-time continuum. An eternal consciousness existing everywhere and nowhere simultaneously. He can manipulate my life, and I can manipulate his. Well, one of them. I'm still working on the other eight. There's no telling what can come of this now. Our emergence has already begun. I just ate a bug that was buzzing around the secretary. To be perfectly honest, I'm not sure if I actually ate it, but I'm going to keep looking around for it until I know for sure. Or until I get distracted by the corner of this letter which I'm currently feeling compelled to pull up and see what's underneath. So should my speech go before all other discernible signs of Professor Charles R. Rowland are lost, please know that I love herring and hate radishes. And if you're going to move after a long period of inactivity, please don't do it suddenly. And remember that I do enjoy rough petting, but that it must be on my terms. Also, if you discard anything anywhere in your flat, know that I'm going to sit as close as I possibly can to it without actually touching it. For the moment, your friend, Charlie. This has been a production of Thaddeus Ellenberg's Casual Friday. Written and read by Thaddeus Ellenberg. With an introduction by Nicole Kalasich. And artwork by Adrian Lobel. This series is independently produced by Thaddeus Ellenberg and Will Scovel. To find more episodes and information, visit our website at casualfridaypodcast.org or email us at contact.casualfriday at gmail.com.